but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Surf. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. It's been a while since we've been in your ears with this podcast, and I can imagine, I should hope you can imagine why that would have been. Right. Uh, we are back in, I would say, a much better mood than we were last time, mm -hmm. three weeks ago. We do have some thoughts, some lingering thoughts about the US Open final that we'll get to later on in the episode. We won't burden you too much with that. We'll just kind of bury it toward the end in an etc. section. <laughs> If you're exhausted and don't want to hear too much about it, it'll be easy to miss. But in the meantime, the big news in women's tennis right now, in tennis, is Arena Sabalenka. Yeah, she just won Wuhan, a big tournament in China. We're moving into Beijing. There are so many points on the table between these two tournaments. It put them together and it's basically a major, which Caroline Garcia won both last year. Sabalenka has been talked about... Can we, can we stick up in there? What? I found myself having to go back and look at the results from last year this time because I'd almost forgotten some of it. Mm. Caroline Gar Garcia won both those tournaments. Yeah. Ash Barty made the final in Wuhan. I remember right? Ash, this, past, this last week, Ash was making a deep run in Wuhan. I'm like, girl, get those points. And then I looked... Like, oh, shit. Like, you didn't quite get them all, did you? <laughs> But it's it's been a wild ride with Sabalenka just these past two or three months. I feel like we've gone from people talking about her like she's she's an up-and-comer, she's one to watch, she could be top 10 next year, to, oh wow, she's here, and she's literally the future. Yeah, I think the best way to explain her rise for us, or for me at least, was yes, she was somebody that we were aware of, but it was somebody that we're like, okay, we don't have to pay too much attention attention to her just yet. Well, and then all and of she us, has so much time, right? Like yeah. she's twenty years old. And then all of a sudden, we're on the ground in Cincinnati, and it's it's happening in real time around you, mm -hmm. and it keeps happening. <laughs> and you could you could really feel the excitement building around her, literally in it, the physical space around yeah, her. The tennis fans generated were... from her physical being. <laughs> <laughs> She'd walk and strut on the court, and you could feel it coming off of her. <laughs> right. I actually thought that as someone with so much raw power that it was going to take her a few years to just become disciplined enough to harness it, mm -hmm. you know, to, to have so much talent, but, but maybe take a little time. And that's the scary thing about her talent. When we get into a little bit later on in this segment, the interview that her coach Dmitry Tursunov gave to Courtney Nguyen for WTA Insider, some of the stuff that he says about Sabalenka and her makeup and the relationship that the two of them have and how she works, her work ethic, that puts her talent into a whole different context that makes her game that much more scary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Sabalenka got far in Cincinnati, making the semifinals, losing to Simona Halep. She won uh, Connecticut the following week. I wasn't sure how she would do in the US Open because she had played so much. And then she gets to the round of 16 and puts in really one of the matches of the tournament against eventual champ Naomi Osaka. 
So here we are. She has incredible momentum and just transitions quite easily into the Asian swing. By winning Wuhan, she now has an outside shot of making Singapore, which is wild. Yeah. She's up to number 16 in the world after, what was she, 73 to start the year? Mm -hmm. And this really, her rise coincides with her partnership with Tursunov, which happened around Wimbledon. So it's really the last few months that she's been able to make this all happen in 2018. What were some of the things that stuck out to you from that interview with Dmitry Tursunov? Mm -hmm. It was a two-parter. This was an epic interview. Kudos to Courtney Nguyen for getting this interview and allowing her subject to speak in paragraphs. Well, the way she says it, it doesn't take much doing. <laughs> right. But he gave you a lot. And we've we've had the privilege to have a lot more interaction with coaches. They did that WTA event in Cincinnati where we actually got to sit down with coaches alone and talk about their relationships with players, which is fascinating to me. And I think a lot of fans are interested in it. But Tursunov says that Sabalenka is extremely athletic but not super coordinated yet. <laughs> he goes to great lengths to make that point multiple times right. throughout the interview. And he says that one of the differences between the men and the women growing up is that the men often play multiple sports. Mm. And so that helps develop their coordination on court, whereas a lot of the women have this raw power and talent, but they aren't able to, to work and develop the movement on court as as quickly as some of the men do but the way he describes it, it's like a a giraffe that a baby <laughs> giraffe that doesn't really know how to move on the court which i think is a bit unfair to her right he, but he did say that she's very coachable and is really receptive to instruction is an extremely hard worker out on court he believes she's working harder than a lot of the other players out there and that she actually enjoys that process more than a lot of players which i can understand i'm i would believe that a lot of tennis players, male and female, see this as a job. You know, not everyone has this burning passion for tennis, mm -hmm. especially if you've been doing it competitively since you're like five years old. I get the impression that for a lot of players, they cycle through multiple coaches before they get to a level of maturity where they're able to listen and take in the coaching to a point mm -hmm. where it's going to really transform their game. And the way Tursunov describes it, Sabalenka is already there, which is Part of what I was talking about before, those those etc. parts of her game outside of just the strokes that make her prospects that much more scary. Right. Right. If she's willing to do all that work and listen, I mean, the sky's the limit. Really? I mean, if she's this good now, and the big thing is that she's fearless. I think she has like seven wins against top 10 players this year. I think when she goes out there, she feels that she matches up well against anyone. Like, I think... She believes she can win every single time she goes out, which is a big thing, and it's not universal. But that's also something that Tursunov said. He doesn't like to talk about her in those terms because he says it sounds cocky. <laughs> you know, comparing right. her to like a Serena in terms of feeling that there is nobody really on her level when she's on her best level. Mm -hmm. You know, like the ball is always, the match is always on her racket. I've heard that. And like you said, it's something that people associate with Serena, that if she loses, it's because she wasn't playing well. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a double-edged sword, right? That I mean, that can be detrimental to Serena and the other person. Like, sometimes she's just outplayed. It's, it's possible. Sabalenka is so young, and uh, 
relatively untested that I don't know if we can go there yet. The other part about that argument is that it, it always negates the the work that the opponent puts in. Because right. a lot of times Serena or Sabalenka or whoever we're casting in this role loses because of what the opponent is doing. It might not be that they're hitting through them. It might be Sueshe junk balling, moon balling or whatever, doing something mm. different that people then try and cast as not real tennis. Right. You know, like... They, like there's a lot of ways to win in tennis. Yeah. In order for Serena or Sabalenka or whoever is playing that role to lose, it means that somebody's doing something kind of untoward <laughs> or not really playing real tennis or... Uh. There's some mitigating circumstance other than the opponent just playing really well. And the fact that they can't necessarily hit faster or stronger than Serena or Sabalenka doesn't negate what they did. Do you know what I mean? Right. And it doesn't... Then we get into this complicated comparison with men's tennis. The argument that faster and stronger is inherently better, Mm -hmm. is more valuable. So just because someone hits harder... Even in women's tennis, if you're the most powerful player out there, it doesn't mean that you're the best. Because we've seen just how much a, a simple, well, not necessarily simple, but a simple thing like movement plays a role in in tennis, in winning tennis matches. Right. Strategy. <laughs> you uh, know. Cor- court sense, like balance. Fitness. <laughs> timing. Outlasting your opponent. Yeah. There's so many facets to winning and so many tools that the well-rounded players can draw upon when they don't have their best game, that it's it's so reductive mm-hmm. to reduce good tennis to just ball bashing. Right. So that kind of brings up something else that Tursunov said, is that he feels Arena is a well-rounded player and is becoming more so all the time. He says that earlier in her career, which was basically like earlier this year, <laughs> she... She was just told that you're a ball basher. He even said she was told she's stupid and she doesn't need to think on court. Because that's not what she's good at. Right. But why can't she be good at it? You know, this is how you build a player that is unbeatable. That is like someone who can take over the next generation. Someone with all that power, like Serena, who also has variety, like Serena, who can think on court, knows where to position herself. Like, you know, you have the raw materials here, so why not use it? We're seeing across all sports at coaching levels, managerial levels, a shift in the way management interacts with personnel, with players. We've gotten these insights from some of the top male coaches on the women's tour from Cincinnati. We're now getting an insight from Tursunov. He said it's almost like a religious conversion. You can't force that on somebody. Someone has to trust you and believe you (laughs) in terms of getting your pupil to be on board with what you're trying to teach them. Part of that is these coaches now finding out that they have to find a way to relate to their players. It's no longer my way or the highway. I grew up being a Braves fan. That old generation of managers, be Bobby Cox or Joe Torre or Lupinella, all these guys, they had their one way of doing it. And if you did not follow the company line, then, you know, you are on the outs. <laughs> Like this whole business about building the culture as they saw fit. And fine tennis is an individual sport, but we're seeing now that so many of the coaches have to adapt themselves. David Taylor talked about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Have to adapt themselves to the people that they're coaching. And part of that is a generational gap. Like young kids are so much more different than 
they were years ago. We talked about this recently. Like even people five years younger than me, I find it so difficult to relate to them. You know, you have to, and especially if you're in that kind of work relationship, coaching that intimate relationship, you have to kind of take yourself out of what you've known to then find mm-hmm. some common ground to be able to impart knowledge. And so I think that that is a huge change across all sports. Really? Yeah. And we, you know, we heard a bunch of the men, the male coaches of female players talk about the challenge of coaching women. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into all of that because we then we're sort of wading into some, you know, some stereotypes about gender, some some truths, I'm sure, about their experience coaching women. But it's it's another layer that that sort of male female dynamic, the the interplay of power I think that these men are thinking hard about how they they relate to their female students, but also employers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a that makes it sort of a complicated relationship. Yeah, and my point that it's not just in tennis, not just male female. Mm-hmm. Like a good example to use now is the new New York Knicks head coach. He was chosen. I believe his name is David Fisdale. He was chosen because of his reputation of being able to relate to the younger generation, mm. and that's. In the NBA, that's a huge part of the hiring process now. How coaches are able to to relate to young kids coming out of high school, out of college. So we've seen a few kind of clickbaity headlines about, I mean, forever, for the past 15 years. Is so-and-so the next Serena? Who's the next Serena? Who's going to carry the torch when the Williams sisters retire? And so, of course, we've seen this about both Naomi and Sabalenka recently. Mm -hmm. And I know that... I myself am guilty in this very episode of bringing up Serena's name where maybe it's not required. I always want to push back at that for for a bunch of reasons. Well, you also said after the US Open that you had no doubt whatsoever that Naomi was going to be a player to change the game. I do, but I I just don't like the language around like who's going to be the next Steffi, the next Serena, the next Martina, because those players left a unique mark on the sport and that's why we're still talking about them it also puts too much pressure on naomi and arena and whoever is next and it also it's like you're trying to usher someone out of the game who's still very much active Mm -hmm. i have a lot of feelings about it and it's not all due to my fandom part of what's at play here is we've seen shifts tonal shifts in tennis throughout the years monica sellis is ushered in a new era when she was winning those slams and being world number one in the early 90s, that was a viscerally different brand of tennis. Mm-hmm. Like the game had changed before your eyes. Lindsay Davenport was a totally different type of player. When the Williams sisters came along, they were the, the manifestation of this sea change in women's tennis. Mm-hmm. And then they took that baton and just destroyed the field right for however many years afterward and still do kind of refuse to drop it exactly (laughs) Um, martina hingis tried to push back for a little while and her resistance can be seen as a a bit of a shift in women's tennis as well to be able to dominate women's tennis for Mm -hmm. those two years amidst all that going on but part of what's at stake with the who's the next serena is who's going to change the game next what's the game going to look like in its next iteration and what do you think that is? I remember recently we were given this story about Kim Kleisters being asked, what do you think the game's going to look like in 10 years? And she gave a surprising answer to folks at the time saying, you know, I can imagine 
like a more counter-punching type player to dominate the sport. Which is like, okay, <laughs> that was a bit mm. surprising, but we've seen a lot of counter-punchers win yeah. in, this in the last year, few years. It's, it's not hard to see that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone like Sloan, who has, you know, I can see a player who is mostly defensive, but can sort of unfurl power to finish points. So is it that somebody can only change the game if they're taking power to the next level? Like, I feel like folks are having a hard time conceptualizing a positive change in women's tennis that's not moving along the continuum to what men's tennis looks (laughs) like. Right, because there is an upper limit of power. Like, there is sort of an athletic limit. You can only be so fast. You can only hit so hard unless the equipment changes, unless the court speed changes. Like, there's going to be, we're going to buck up against the 9.69 you know, whatever Usain Bolt's uh, 9.59, was that his role? Yes, I think so. Anyway, the human body can only do so much. So are we always going to look for more power? Because we've seen it. We've seen it in Madison Keys. Does that mean that Madison is the future of the game? Like there's so much more that goes into it. And are we only looking at Naomi and Arena because they have that power, that easily identifiable Mm -hmm. big boom tennis, as opposed to somebody like Simona Halep, potentially, who could like run herself ragged like the Energizer Bunny for the next 10 years and win everything. Right. But then we won't necessarily look at it in the same elite breath as if somebody like Naomi were to do it. Mm. Like there's always this undercurrent of, well, mm, that's not really great tennis if somebody who's not powerful does it. <laughs> when right. in fact, that's a misconception about Serena's career that we've been pushing back against for so long now. Well. Few players hit with as much spin as Serena. But if you watched her runs at Wimbledon in the U.S. Open, she was barely even playing like a power player. She wasn't passive in rallies, but she was more patient. She, like you said, hitting with spin, hitting angles. Venus is the more powerful player consistently. But but there's also empty power. A lot of times what? Venus is hitting with empty power. <laughs> yes, like without without an idea of what she wants to do, right? Not necessarily. Just see the ball, hit the ball. Oh. You could say it's a lack of strategy, but there's so many more ways to to successfully counter that without like switching it up, without putting more spin on the ball, giving different different angles. You know, like mm. the constant barrage of power doesn't always equate to winning, even if you're hitting within the lines. Right. At risk of belaboring the point, because we have other things to talk about, I just want to understand what does it mean to be the next Serena or to be the next big thing? Does it mean that you're the type of player who every match is up to you? Does it mean that you represent something bigger than tennis, that you are culturally significant? Does it mean that it's something new to tennis? Can you be a great player but not have as much impact because something about you doesn't speak to people? I think that's possible too. Do you have to be winning all the time? (laughs) You have to be compelling, that's for sure. You have to be compelling in your losses. Whatever the answer to that question is, we always caution to still appreciate the greats while we have them and not take Mm. it as an opportunity to try and usher them out the door. (laughs) (laughs) What were some of the other results, tournament winners in the time since the US Open, Mm -hmm. since we've been on air? Kiki Burdens won her third title of the year in Seoul, defeating Isla Tomjanovic, who's had a great run of results getting back to kind of where she should be. 
Tomlanovich, if you recall, stretched Simona Halep over, what, two? Yeah, that match was suspended for rain. Uh-huh. We were watching her doing real well against Halep in a restaurant in Cincinnati, and Yelena Astapenko was sitting across the way watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the World 299 Margarita Gasparian, who won a title against her doubles partner Potapova in Tashkent. Gasparian, who's from Russia, has been out of the game for a long time, she underwent three knee surgeries, the first in 2016. She was off the tour for 15 months and kind of out of nowhere. You know, she's been playing challengers, trying to get her ranking up, gets into this tournament in Tashkent, and here we are. Her first title since 2015, which she won in Baku. So Central Asian Republics are her playground. Going back to Kiki Burton's, kudos to her. You win the biggest title of your career in Cincinnati, and you're able to come back and back it up. Mm. And she has a serious shot at making Singapore at this point. She sure does. It looks like whoever between her and Plishkova, whoever gets further in Beijing, is in Singapore. Save Sabalenka winning the title. Right. In Beijing. One of my favorite stories of the past three weeks, I just sat here watching this on Twitter for like five minutes on replay. Nishioka beats Air Bear in Shenzhen. And as he's signing off his acceptance speech, he says something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I have a few more tournaments to go. I hope that you still follow me. Please remember my name. It's not Nishikori. It's Nishioka. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Snaps to him. It was one of the most beautifully sassy moments I've ever seen. Oh my god. And if you see the way his eyes are telling the story as well, it's like, girl, this is everything. It's Yoshi. Mr. Nishioka, if you're nasty. (laughs) It's Nishioka, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And kudos to Herbert for getting to the final in Shenzhen. I'm hoping that he puts together a nice little singles career. Airbear is up to a new career high of number 53, so close to cracking the top 50. His is one of the more beautiful games to watch. His service motion is just, it's a, it hurts your body watching him serve. <laughs> <laughs> Benad Tomic, who you may know most recently from I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. A blast from the past. Bernie Tomic is out here winning tournaments again. Beat Fabio Fognini in Chengdu. Uh, saving four match points in the final. He also beat my king, Felix Auger-Aliassime, mm-hmm. in the quarterfinals in Chengdu, which I will forgive, I guess. Bernie's also a qualifier at that tournament. He <laughs> yeah. won qualifying and then won the tournament. And this is not the uh, I-don't-give-a-fuck kind of Bernie Tomic. This was somebody who was well-invested in this tournament. Mm-hmm. Up to the back inside the top 80, he set himself up to maybe, you know, if he's not off uh, carousing too much in the offseason, to be able to start 2019 afresh. <laughs> Reboot his career, if you will. Dominic Team, look at him, out here winning hardcore tournaments. After a great run at the U.S. Open, an incredible performance against Rafael Nadal, he was dealing with some viruses over the summer. I didn't really expect anything for him on hard courts. He beat Martin Kleson in St. Petersburg, Kleson has won, had won like his first six finals of his career. This was his first loss in a final. <laughs> so kudos to both players for that. Gilles Simon 
wins Mets, which is really, at this point, the Joe Songa Open. Sadly, Joe has been out with an injury. He's back. He's, He's back, back playing tournaments. He was spotted at Ryder Cup with Luca Puy. Ryder Cup was in France this year. Paris. And Team Europe won. Correct. 17 and a half to 10 and a half or 11 and a half, something wow. like that. It was a blowout. Wow. It was a riot. A rout. A rout. A riot of a rout. <laughs> <laughs> and another French player, Pauline Parmentier, won Quebec City. We talked about her earlier this year. She is 32 years old. She has been getting her life this year. Like, she has really gotten her career on track and beat Pagula in Quebec City, who was really a surprise finalist as well. Other players doing well. The career trajectory for Donna Vekage is as high as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Made the semifinals in Tokyo, beating Sloane Stevens, Joe Conta, Caroline Garcia. Then she goes on to beat Sakari in the first round in Beijing. Sakari having a rough back-to-back first round go of it in Wuhan and right. Beijing. But Vekic is, she is here. I'm, I'm really pleased that now we can talk about Donna Vekic in terms of her tennis. That really her talent is speaking for itself now that she can put a lot of those things behind her. I'm generally just happy that she's playing well. I mentioned Felix Ojealiasim got to the quarterfinals in Chengdu after qualifying. This is his first ATP quarterfinal, so look out for him. And let's talk about Chong Wang, who won the 2018 Asian Games, the gold medal. She reached the semifinal in Wuhan, losing to eventual runner-up Annette Contivate, and she was a title winner in Guangzhou against Putin Seva, reaching a career-high number 28. Legacy of Lina. One of the many Chinese players who are coming to the fore. I mean, she's a, a veteran at this point. She's 26, 27. But Lina herself was able to put her career together later on mm-hmm. in her late 20s. Now, Wuhan, which has been the biggest tournament of the fall so far on either tour, saw only one seeded player reach the quarterfinals in Ashley Barty. What is going on with the WTA, say, top 15? A lot of things. I mean, it's the end of a long season. Oh, that was a question for you to answer. I was yeah, sitting here it was trying kind to... of rhetorical. Okay. I thought I was having to come up with something. <laughs> no, just sit back. Relax. Oh. <laughs> Simona Halep, world number one, is obviously dealing with this back injury. She has suffered four straight losses, dating back to the final in Cincinnati against Burdens. Muguruza lost to Siniakova in Wuhan, although she has put together a few wins in Beijing. Caroline Wozniacki lost to Monica Puig. Garcia, who was a defending champion, also lost to Siniakova. And Svitolina has not had a great go of it, losing to Sabalenka in Wuhan, which is fine. It was a little too early in the tournament for her. And then she just lost to Krunic in Beijing. And Petra Gvidova has suffered back-to-back losses against Pavlyuchenkova in Wuhan and Gavrilova in Beijing. So it wasn't a great week for the top women. I mean, it happens. We still got a really exciting Final Four in it's Wuhan. Happen- but the thing is, it's happened a lot. Right. And we've pushed back against this idea that, that the WTA is not having its stars perform as they should. And we've come down on the side of the fence that dictates that it has to do with the depth of the WTA Tour. And I'm still on that side of the fence. All right. I've... I would like a happy medium myself. And who of these top players would you like to be? Would you like to see winning? Uh-huh. 
of these top eight. Well, the two, oh, the top eight. Because that's really what what it boils down to. Yeah. They get to the quarterfinals if you play to the seeding. So who of the top eight are you mad about not making the quarterfinals? Oh, I mean, Naomi's like the one of of the top eight who I'm going to stand. I think really the only one. So I'm calling bullshit on you right now, is what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm I'm reading the news here. Uh, I'm not okay. passing judgment. Mm-hmm. I'm saying this is what happened in Wuhan. It was notable. You just said you wanted a happy medium. Oh, whatever. <laughs> if only you had a mute button to use on me on this podcast. Exactly. The other thing that's been happening in tennis, we had a Davis Cup week. The uh, Davis Cup semifinals, obviously. Croatia beat the U.S., thankfully. Well, but Francis Tiafo had to be the one to suffer the heartbreak. Yeah, isn't that like such an injustice? Croatia won the first two rubbers. Cilic and Choric did what they were supposed to do. The U.S. won the doubles rubber. Jacksa, I mean, Jacksa cannot stop winning in doubles, and quite the opposite in singles. Similarly to Coco Vandewe, who has lost something like her last eight singles matches, but, you know, won... A huge tournament in doubles. So it was on Chorich and TFO to win that deciding rubber, the fifth rubber. It lasted four hours. You're saying rubber way too much. <laughs> I really hate that terminology. Why is it called rubber? I don't know. We need to get to the bottom of this. And that it's called a tie is also very confusing. Anyway, Chorich ended up winning that match and securing the point. And it put me in a very uncomfortable position of rooting against Francis Tiafo. <laughs> because who wants to send Make America Great Again USA to the Davis Cup final? I sure don't. You're the American here. I am. <laughs> self-hatred, I guess. France and Spain. France beat Spain. Both teams can send their B team and they're still basically some of the top teams in the world. Well, these teams were not some of the top teams in their world. The, the- <laughs> <laughs> These teams would not have beaten most of the top teams if it were earlier on in the event. It just so happens that they had to field their B teams. Right. right. But when was the last time Spain fielded Rafael Nadal, for example? Okay. I, I, I've got nothing. Not even going there. I've got nothing. You may have heard that the Davis Cup is changing. Have you heard this? This is something I feel like it's kind of big news. We've actively not reported on this well, on the podcast. So, we've had it on the agenda at yeah. least three times. And three times, it was like, well, we'll leave that for another time. (laughs) So the vote actually happened during Cincinnati. And for us, we were obviously doing a lot of other things. Then it came time to do the U.S. Open preview, and it just didn't make it into the agenda. So now here it is. And there are other people out there who, for whom it seems like it's their life story (laughs) to be wrapped up in Davis Cup. we've We've said from the start that that's not us. Well... I think what you mean is that other people can do it better, so you should go seek them out. That's one way of, that's one offshoot of what I was saying, yes. Right. No, but I think it is incumbent on us to at least mention it and and try to wade into what the changes mean. Sure. Right? I'm just saying we weren't going to fake it, <laughs> just to be newsworthy at the time. Okay. So back in August, the National Federations voted on this Davis Cup proposal, which was fielded by... The ITF, headed by President Dave Haggerty. Everyone knows that Gerard Piquet and his Cosmos group were spearheading this thing. It passed with 71% of the vote out of the national federations. And most of the opposition, the big opposition, was from the UK and Australia. 
There was also some opposition in Eastern Europe and the Balkan countries, but USA and France voted yes. And it seems like most of the French players are against it. Well, a lot of the French players are vocally against it, but their federation voted yes. What this means is that the ties that we have come to know and some have come to love in all different countries and small cities all over the world are not really going to happen for the top countries anymore. There's going to be this event probably in November with 18 teams. Two of them are wild cards and the first thing is a group stage. So six groups, three teams, three matches, best of three, two singles and one doubles team. Are you still following? Sure. So this all happens in the space of one week. It's a yes. one week event. This is very quick. Whoever makes it out of the group is the the six teams who win their groups plus the two best second place teams in their groups. And those are the quarterfinalists. And then, you know, there's more. It's just it's too much to get into. That was uh, an astonishingly good recap. Rundown. Are you, are you being sarcastic? Yes. <laughs> The teams that finish between number 5 and 16 will have to participate in the qualifiers, which happen in February, which are going to be similar to like the old, you know, world group quarterfinals and qualifying and all that stuff. Meaning whoever didn't make the semifinals the year before. The semifinalists the year before are automatically into right. the next year's event. So those four teams are automatically in. The two wild cards were given for 2019 to Argentina and Great Britain, who happen to be the most recent winners of the Davis Cup title, who are actually not in the world top 16. As you know, France won last year. They get automatic entry, but the UK, or Great Britain, sorry, not the UK. Sorry, Northern Ireland, you're not invited. And Dave Haggerty recognized Great Britain for their amazing legacy in Davis Cup and the fact that their fans are willing to travel. And it's in Madrid this year, so it's very easy for British fans to travel there. It's in Madrid the next two years. Yeah. In 2019 and 2020, the first two years will happen on European soil in Madrid. Right. So no surprises there. One of the drawbacks, I think, to this new event is that I, while there's this this promise of money going to national federations, and supposedly a lot of the smaller countries are going to be getting some Cosmos money, we'll wait and hold our breath on that. But the con is that a lot of these smaller countries are not going to have the resources and the facilities to host one of these massive 18-team finals at the end of the year, right? So that the character and the excitement that comes with home ties is something that's going to be more difficult to come by. You said that this was a con, and I think the whole thing is a bit of a con, like (laughs) a a fraud. (laughs) Because really, you have to be following the money here. Mm -hmm. Where is this $300 million coming from? Why is Gerard Piquet involved? Where did the where did Cosmos come from all of a sudden? Right. To the point where the ITF is willing to just jump into bed with them. And it just reeks of a a Republican promise about the state of your economy. <laughs> <laughs> what? Seriously. How did we get there? No, because it's just like, you're going to make all this money. Vote for us. So you'll make all this money. Mm. The economy will be great. Blah, 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 blah. Everything will trickle down to you. That's what I. That's what I hear throughout this whole thing. What's the tangible investment that's going to be happening right and now we're getting more clues as to what's going on 
yes, the preliminary runs will be happening in February, but there, there's at least, what is it, two more weeks in the schedule that now the Cosmos group wants to fill with right. Davis Cup-related right. events. And one of them in September is this so-called Majesty Cup. It's a winner-take-all, 64-man field, $10 million pot where <laughs> you go knock yourselves off with swords and the last person standing after the joust takes $10 million. Right, but that is the only person who wins money, mm-hmm. supposedly. I do want to point out that I know that a joust is not with swords. <laughs> I do tend it's to with get... those long sticks yes. and you're on horses and stuff. Or on pedestals on American Gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> I do tend to get my metaphors crossed yeah. all the time. It's like part swords. of it's part of my appeal, I think. Oh, I'd like to think at this I point. I see. Yeah. I'm just I I just can't help but be suspicious of Piquet's involvement. I just can't. Well, like is this driven by, you know, here we had a problem, we're going to solve it to make tennis better and to make the experience better for fans and players. Is that like was that the starting point. I'm not sure that was the starting point. Because we know that for the players, that wasn't taken into consideration. Right. Because we've heard time and time again that the players, by and large, are not happy overall with these changes. They've been very vocal about it. And lots of them have been saying, why weren't we asked? Why wasn't our input taken into consideration? Right. So we know, we know that that is a failing of the process at this point. And so, if Davis Cup is being played and money and prizes and prestige generated on the backs of the labor of these players, they are the heart of the Davis Cup. Why isn't their voice and their input taken into consideration? That makes me feel like the powers that be are being a bit disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Guess who has pledged a generous financial contribution to the new Davis Cup? Larry Ellison. Mm. (laughs) Larry Ellison, who will probably host a version of this Davis Cup in several years when it leaves Madrid. I would not be surprised. I think like part of this, and we have been agnostic about this change for a long time. We haven't really been very vocal about it. Davis Cup wasn't really something that was on our radar a lot of the times, right? Just as fans. But hell, Davis Cup was here in Toronto and you didn't go. I had to work, but you well, didn't go. I mean, I'm not really going to go watch Dennis and Milos. So <laughs> I saw them in Cincinnati. You were like, I'm only going if Felix is playing. <laughs> exactly. If Felix had gotten a single spot, I would have gone. I, I just mean, don't like a lot of people yelling and I don't really like the jingoistic patriotism. Yes. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. How jingoistic would have Canada, would Canada well, have gotten? Have them? you watched The Amazing Race Canada? <laughs> it's full of propaganda. I will say this. It's possible that multiple interests can be served for the better with this new Davis Cup proposal. I'm just going to keep my eye on it and see how it develops. I'm not going to be out here saying it's going to be absolutely dreadful, nor am I going to say it's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread because I, I, I don't historically have a vested interest in Davis Cup. Right. So it'd be disingenuous of me for to sit here and be like, on standing firm on one side of the fence but we will be keeping an eye on it from a distance to see if there's any fucker that comes up (laughs) i think something to keep an eye on is saturation so the davis cup thing is one thing but then you have this dumbass majesty cup thing in september you have this I, i can't even remember the names they're all so stupid 
the one in January that's trying to replace Hopman Cup, if these sort of things keep popping up, I think you'll see a cup saturation, <laughs> a bowl saturation. You <laughs> the know, cup will runneth over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna mention the Labor Cup because it didn't. Again, I don't know like, her. I have said before that I'm pretty agnostic about Labor Labor Cup. I'm not interested. I don't hate it. I don't like it. It's just it's there, and it is what it is. But that was cool for the fans. It was cool for Chicago. But we don't need like six of them in a year. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll see if this contributes to the further Ellisonization of tennis, if you will. <laughs> I just coined that. But to me, what did you say earlier? The Vandewation? The Vandewayesque. Vandewayesque. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I haven't had much opportunity to use yet because that's when you like, cuss at your opponent to their face to their face like directed at them which sloan did not do we'll, we'll get, get in, to that we'll get into that but i just i don't like where where this whole atp itf cabal is going because boys club in well yes on one hand i do think that the atp sees the wta as a direct competitor but also as like an inferior, a, like a like a vestigial organ that mm-hmm. they can cut off, like you know, a, I, a second kidney that they don't really yeah. need. When we know that joint tournaments generate more fan interest, they generate a lot of revenue. I think the ATP would prefer the WTA just go away, like not be a part of them. So part of this is we understand at this point that the ATP sometimes acts directly against the interests of the WTA. It's not just forgetting about them. They actually undermine them. The other thing is that we want tennis to be more accessible, more and more accessible. And this Indian Wells sort of tournaments owned by billionaires looking, going where the money is to, at the expense of tennis history and making tennis more and more available to all different kinds of people. That's annoying to me. And, and also the, the opposite of where I want tennis to go. And this sudden influx of investment and predatory interest by outsiders. Right. The outsourcing of tennis to outsiders is, it's concerning to me. So (laughs) let's leave it at that. You just said that one of the reasons why you want, you're skeptical of the Davis Cup is because of the ways in which it might make tennis inaccessible to more people. One of the ways that tennis will be more accessible to more people, at least in the U.S. in 2019, is because WTA Tennis is coming back to the Tennis Channel. That is huge news, that they're canceling the rest of their contract with BN Sports in the U.S. And coming back to Tennis Channel, Tennis Channel will be the home of WTA Tennis on television. I I hope that we get the details of that arrangement because i'm very curious how that all went down how you get out of a contract you're already in (laughs) what tennis channel was willing to pay for wta tennis i'm interested in all of that because we know there was a lot of behind the scenes negotiations that we weren't privy to publicly that caused us to not be too vocal about and critical of the wta this past year with this whole saga and the 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 net result now with tennis being back on tennis channel with WTA tennis being back 
and accessible is awesome news. What's not so awesome news? Injury reports. Andy Murray and Maria Sharapova are shutting down their season. Andy needs some time, he says, to kind of just get back into fighting shape. Sustained a, a small knee injury over the Asian swing. Serena, to the surprise of absolutely no one, is not playing through the Asian swing, will not try for Singapore, and won't go to Zhuhai, even though she would have probably qualified. Venus has pulled out of events as of right now. She's still on the entry list for Luxembourg, a tournament she's played before. Yeah. Which gives me some hope that she might still play. <laughs> you know, they they may be ponying up some real money to yeah, get Venus and, there. So. You know, Venus likes to travel. Maybe it's one of those locations where she has good feelings about she wants to maybe take a working vacation to end the year who knows (laughs) rafa is still hanging on to potentially playing again in 2018 his us open was cut short after all those long grueling matches at flushing meadows his team says that the goal the first goal is to maybe try for paris at you know play bercy if not then the bigger goal is to be ready to play London. Rafa does not want to miss London. He's rehabbing, things are going okay. He doesn't want to push things. It's this age-old adage from Rafa, no, he's going to listen to his body. (laughs) And the biggest goal is to make sure that he's ready to compete in 2019. So if Rafa's body responds, we'll see him again sometime. It's possible we won't. I suppose it's time to revisit our last episode. Maybe any lingering issues or questions that are going on with regard to Serena Naomi. This is is really the issue that will not die. And it's because it's pushed itself into mainstream media that now we get clickbaity stories constantly. Every time a player talks back to an umpire, every time there's any sort of spat in a tennis match, we've got to hear about Serena again. We've had Kavanaugh Serena crossover this past week. I mean, which was just, a step too far for me, <laughs> but still instructive in some ways. <laughs> Let me tell you, I did not expect Serena Williams to to find her way into the Supreme Court nomination process. But it like, happened. That was uh, a little too much. And but this, th- I mean, this also reminds you of the sort of resonance that this issue has with people who are outside of tennis the fact that black women making noise and standing up for themselves makes people uncomfortable people within tennis who are very very close to this may not see it that way but but a lot of people do there's a schism a definite schism between people closely intimately involved with tennis and those looking at it from the outside right and the, the subtitle for this segment for us was, what are the things that are lingering with us from that U.S. Mm. Open final? I've got to say, I fear that I have become radicalized even more in the three weeks since this has passed. I think it's good that we recorded that episode when we did, because I have much less discipline now mm. than I did then. Okay, where is my mute button for you? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I'm just mad. Like, I'm perpetually mad. I've pretty much stayed off tennis Twitter for a lot of this month. It's been necessary mentally and emotionally. But also, there's just always somebody 
talking pure bullshit out here. Your Twitter block button is renamed Take Your Tings and Be On Your Merry Way. (laughs) Fly Off With The Wind, Bye Bye Baby. My block button is War The Fuck Out. Let me tell you. How about you get the fuck out? <laughs> no, honestly. Do you know, I sat, you know here, what I sat here waiting all episodes to try and weave that in, and right. I'm so happy I did. Buy Get the Fuck Out on iTunes, <laughs> Spotify. What do people do? Where, where do people listen to music now? They, I, don't, um, I don't know. Apple Music. It makes me so feel so old. Basically, buy Mariah Carey's new single. GTFO. Yeah. Which you can figure it out. She <laughs> sings the word fuck many times. Which is wild. Taking a cue from Beyonce. Who knew fuck could be so melodic? I did. (laughs) You know why I'm mad? Is because we didn't even get five minutes to enjoy the Sloane Stevens, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova dust-up. Because people had to make... They made several leaps. They had to take those leaps and take the dog whistle into the frequencies that we can all hear. It's not a dog whistle anymore. It's so heavy-handed. If everybody can hear it. It's so heavy-handed. You know what I mean? What Sloane and Nastia did was funny. It's to be enjoyed. And there was a time on Tennis Twitter where we could enjoy that. But now we got to talk about, wow, look at Sloane. Just like another American that I won't mention. And so the, the subtext of all of this is that when your faves do stuff like this, you think it's funny. And you're using, might I mention, African-American vernacular English to talk about it. Talk about dragging. We say this all the time. We say it all the time. We said it on the last episode. It was a whole like five minute long segment of that last episode. Out here using the black vernacular, the African-American mm. vernacular, and co-opting right. it. Talk about then- cis this, fam that, dragging. Uh, shade, tea, reading, everything. When white women do it, it's funny. When these women who offend you do it, oh, I'm not racist, but I don't like them. And so where I think we can go is I wish that Serena and Sloane had a better relationship. <laughs> so they can... <laughs> so... <laughs> Why is that so funny? <laughs> Because I feel that they have some solidarity here. I typically have an idea of where you're going with these things. And I was so caught up time by that one. (laughs) Just come with me. And just the idea of the two of them kicking. Right. I'm co-opting the vernacular here. Exactly. Take the journey with me. I wish that they had a better relationship because I think that they have some solidarity here. Is that there are fans out here saying that Sloane and Serena and -and so-and-so... I just cannot believe how they behave. Just clutching their pearls about what Sloane did. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What the hell are you talking about? And so I want people to understand that you can have all the right politics and you can say all the right things and still be racist. And the other thing is that... Or do and say racist things. Right. In your complete fucking ignorance and just quick triggered nature to defend your fave at all costs. And the other thing is that you can, part of being anti-racist is sticking up for people you don't like. Thank you. Do you know what I mean? Like, Thank you. (laughs) You can look at what someone like Sloane or Serena or Venus or Xena Garrison have gone through, and you can understand that conceptually as systemic racism. But if it's somebody who offends you personally, 
like it's distasteful to you, a lot of people are just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of being an ally and being an activist is sticking up for people who personally offend you. That's why it's hard. One of the many reasons it's hard. You said something to me privately that I wanted to make sure we added to this agenda. Because I thought it was very instructive. We really haven't <laughs> debriefed much at all since the last episode. We've barely talked about it. We were out mm. with a friend. Shout out to Nikisha. And we got into talking about the, the US Open situation again. And you had mentioned this business of Serena having a morsel of white privilege. Well, the context was that some people are saying that, you know, Serena is a wealthy woman. She doesn't experience blackness in the same way anymore. And basically she's insulated from racism because of her privilege, because of her socioeconomic status at this time. We've heard the same thing about LeBron James when someone spray painted the N-word on his garage, I think. this That was earlier this year, right? And so people said, well, how that's not even going to affect him. He's rich. He's incredibly powerful. Whatever. Just move on. But like, not, you know, myself not being black, I don't think that I'm the best vessel to to sort of give this message. I don't think that when you kind of achieve this tiny little scrap of privilege, that those scars just disappear. Like that you're, you're not insulated from racism. And we see this over and over again, right? You can still be called the N-word if you're the president. And have like, it still mean something right. to you and hurt you. There is an intersection of identity politics and economics that is forever entwined and can never be separated from me. Which is why this, to get more political in a broader sense, the idea of communism as a political ideology and how it's manifested in North American politics, for example, that the upper classes, once you've achieved that status, that you're then kind of insulated from all this other stuff, that the, that race and identity politics don't go hand in hand. Economic privilege trumps everything else. Yeah, that's like the classic brochalist, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that the other differences race and gender and sexual orientation those are just going to come along mm-hmm. like we got to deal with class and then the rest uh we don't really have a plan for it but i guess we'll fix it when we get there i was in a class in in grad school and i had a professor who did a lot of groundwork in cuba and a lot of his career's work was researching and and being on the ground for the cuban revolution and the years afterward or whatever was friendly with the castros whatever I'm in this class and he's trying to teach me the the ins and the outs and the the ups and the downs <laughs> of la revolution. <laughs> exactly. And I'm here with my gay self trying to figure out how identity politics fits into this. How gayness is dealt with within the revolution, how women's issues are dealt with within the revolution. And when asked that question, he said when economic prosperity is achieved for all, through socialism, those things will necessarily be brought along as well. I'm like, well, bitch, how long am I supposed to sit here and wait for that? <laughs> What's the plan? <laughs> like, I need something more concrete than that. Yeah. And my point in talking about this, like, you have Serena as a, a wealthy person. And within, within that superstructure, you're kind of appropriating some level of rich whiteness as well, right? Like, there's, there's an unmistakable interplay between being very rich and being white 
Like yeah. in the mind's eye of American culture and history, those two are intertwined. So as a black person, when you get more wealthy, what you get is the proximity to whiteness. Mm-hmm. You don't get whiteness. No. You get closer to white people mm-hmm. and white money. But you are not insulated from racism. No, because as you can see, this the moment that you fuck up, you're that black bitch that I knew you were. You're mm-hmm. that, you know, like you're exactly who I thought you were back when you were down in Compton. You are still policed in the way that you can behave. It's what we saw in this past week with the Kavanaugh hearings. In the differences between Anita Hill was able to and allowed to present herself in 1991 as opposed to how Dr. Blasey Ford presented her story this time around and the difference in reception. Part Mm. of that is having to do with a different time and place. American society being more attuned to the sensitivities that necessarily must come along with dealing with issues of sexual violence. Right. But we're more ready to hear it. Exactly. But to this day, we are still struggling with the ways in which black women present themselves in order to be taken seriously. Mm. Because Anita Hill, there was no way in which she could have presented herself that would have made her story more credible. Credible was the word that we heard a lot this right. past week. Like she brought herself all her professional credentials in a very forthright, commanding way in 1991 and that was we kept hearing that well if she had been more vulnerable uh that she maybe she wasn't damaged enough by what mm-hmm. happened to her right but at the same time we see dr Blasey ford and this could be her typical demeanor or maybe the way she is after having to deal with this trauma for so many years but the way she presented herself she was able to present herself in this hearing that was more delicate, more damaged, made her feel more credible to a lot of people. I saw a lot of folks say like, Lord, I don't want to talk about this, but imagine if Serena did this or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And it's not necessarily about Serena. It's about black women. Like this is the grappling that we have to come to at this point. And it's what we can then extrapolate to Sloan. Mm. It's the way in which we police the way black women are able to present themselves publicly, whether it is talking about being hard done, talking about their achievements. We police them the way they talk about uh, the successes in their lives, the failures in their lives, being attacked, being assaulted. No matter how a black woman presents anything that happens to them, there's only one way in which it's palatable, Hmm. right? Which then veers into this respectability politics. We need black women and black we're not even talking about black masculinity here but for this specific issue black women it's a very specific way that black women need to behave for people not to come out of the woodwork and attack their credibility in whatever the field in whatever the situation you talked about privately with me about how you are so sick and tired of for example beyonce and and serena being having their happiness oh my called God. into question right like nothing makes these think pieces flow like black women having fun in public <laughs> like beyonce's pregnancy photos serena's pregnancy photos alexis ohanian out here you know going to bat for serena which to be honest has gotten a little annoying but it has driven people and almost universally white women to write think pieces about oh, Beyonce is just, this is not how pregnancy really is. This is fake. 
or Serena and Alexis are just performing their relationship for the public. It's like every every time a famous black woman has a little too much fun, somebody's got to go out here and write an essay about how this is problematic. And this is not having to do anything really with what happened at the U.S. Open. <laughs> right. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. <laughs> so don't be coming up in our mentions like, right. I don't know why what this has to what? do with the U.S. Don't Open be, final. Do not come out here and say... First one was a warning, then point penalty, then game penalty. You know the rules. Bitch, if I hear the motherfucking rules one more time, I will snap. <laughs> like, I will lose it. And every time he snaps, I have to deal with it. <laughs> I have to deal with it. And y'all don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Can we move on to greener pastures? Because this incident between Sloan and Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova was hilarious. It just gave me everything. And it really has me considering becoming a Sloan fan. It to was just, it was masterful. To which I say, you present polar opposites of your personality on this show. <laughs> because you take such firm and trend stances. And then I the know. next week, you're so easily swayed. I, I really am. Next week, Sloan will probably make me mad about something. But <laughs> Listen, buy him an iced coffee from Starbucks. And, and you got me. You got him. He is that gay. <laughs> okay, so first of all, Sloan won her first match in Asia since 2015. This is a sea change. Like, she is flipping the script. Granted, for about a year, she was out with the injury, so she didn't play for a lot mm-hmm. of that time. Mm-hmm. But this is a big deal that she's winning in Asia. She obviously really, really cared about this match against Pavlyuchenkova. She was pissed off. Because as Sloan was about to serve for the second set, Anastasia took a medical timeout. In Sloan's opinion, she was not injured. She shared freely. Eventually, it gets to 5-4. Sloan wins the second set, wins the third, wins the match. But on that 5-4 break, Sloan was mad. What you can't see in the video is that Pavs said something to Sloan as they were walking to the chairs. So from the video, it looks like Sloan started this whole dust up, right? But Anastasia said something to her, which prompted a response. Sloan said, what's disrespectful is you taking an MTO at 5-2 and you're not even injured. So, so she sat herself in her chair, talked a little bit. She was addressing the umpire. She said, it's fine. Play the third set. Da, 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 da. Like, it was just a, it was a very calm but angry conversation, right? That was it. Like, it didn't have to be more than that. And then Pavlyuchenkova gets up and comes over. And so Jenny is down from the chair and she's trying to break it all up and everything. But (laughs) what annoyed me is that, like, Jenny is on Sloan's side trying to calm her down when she is sitting her ass in her chair, not doing anything. What is totally out of order is getting up out of your chair like Pavs did and come over. See, what I what I interpreted that at the time was she was kind of keeping Pavs on her side mm-hmm. from, like, crossing over. Okay. That's, that's what I thought. All right. <laughs> the, the whole thing was too much. I mean, Sloan gave you so many gems. So when did the fucking bitch happen? <laughs> so it was on a point that Sloan won, and Pavs at the net hit an overhead, like, right into Sloan's face. Which I have no problem with. Like, that's what you do. I'm on record. Like, this is a tactic that is totally acceptable to me. 
So this happened after the dust uh, Yeah. It was in the third set. This is with Sloan leading 3-love in the third set. She wins the point after the ball comes straight for her, and she turns to her box and said, fucking bitch just tried to hit me. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, it annoys me so much that people are mad about this. Because players do this all the time. In every language on mm-hmm. earth, like... It's not a big deal. She didn't turn to Nastia and say, you are a bitch. She didn't do what Coco Vandewey does and scream profanities at her opponent. But you know... It's like not a big deal in the long run. But this is where I am going to call sexism. Okay. On the part of the fans. Because Mm -hmm. we do not, not nearly hold men to the same standards as women when it comes to this type of shit. Right? We can laugh and gaggle and have a, a big old kiki about the men doing it. But when the women do it, it becomes more pointed. It becomes their bitches, their blah, 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 blah. The men are out here saying all kinds of misogynistic shit in all different kinds of languages mm-hmm. that people are translating and are known. It might not be known on TV, but y'all know your fave said that on tennis Twitter. Right. And so now, now Sloan with her back to Pavlyuchenkovo is caught miming that or saying it and it's a big issue like let me tell you i'd be saying much worse oh much worse girl (laughs) (laughs) you know so what is the appropriate response you just got into a a tiff with this person all right and they've hit the ball at you while you're up in the third set what should you say like girl nice shot i know right and so the the ending is that they met at the net at the end of the match they shook they talked for a while. It was all very collegial. Like, clearly they made up and mended fences. And again, it's not that big a deal. Because, like, they're not enemies now. The heat of competition, it's like when Serena and Yelena used to get into it and chat back mm-hmm. across the net. They would always have this long conversation at the net. And Seren- it would be over. Serena and Vika, don't try me today. Oh my... Girl, don't like, wave your little finger at exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> These things are not unusual. Right. It's not. And it's not a big deal. And Sloane is not that type of type of woman. No, typically, not at all. you know? Which is why this was kind of newsworthy, because neither player is very confrontational. Sloane is not known for having these fights. But Bree, the general of the Sloane Hive, said that ever since that Vika timeout in the Australian Open, Sloane is very vigilant about the the skirting the of the authenticity, the authenticity of medical timeouts. <laughs> Let us also remember, and this will always be the calling point, the point to return to. Check your reaction to the lumberjacking. Right. Yeah. That is that is what we should still be paying attention to in 2018. Mm-hmm. The lumberjacking, not that fucking bitch tried to hit yeah. me. Because if y'all are gonna harp on something, I am too. Speaking of pieces of shit. Were we speaking of pieces of shit? No. Either way, Fernando Verdasco is a piece of shit. <laughs> wow, finally something everyone on Tennis Twitter can agree on. That Her- his reaction to that ball child was inappropriate. Seriously, like you read the comments of that Trouble Fault tweet and it's universal. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Tennis Twitter. Something in 2018. <laughs> something in the last eight years that we can all agree on. <laughs> right. Oh. <sighs> Do you want to describe what happened quickly? Uh, well, we only saw a short video of what happened, but basically he was screaming and, and motioning like a child intimidatingly 
toward this ball kid to bring him a towel. Mm-hmm. And then the ball kid is already on his way. He's literally two seconds away from delivering the towel. Yeah. And then he goes and does like a hurrying, angry hurrying motion toward the kid and screams at him even more. Yeah. Like, dude. Dude, like that deserved a code violation. And that deserves a rule change. Like that one incident, incident should change the rule once and for all. Ball kids are not your servants. You put your towel somewhere on the side of the court and you get it your damn self. They are literally children. <laughs> they are. They are. They are children. Yeah. He is screaming at a child. Really? A child that is working for free. Mm-hmm. Or some tangential hey. benefits from the tournament at this tournament. He is not the only one. No, he's not. Azarenka has done it in the past. Even Andy Murray has had a little, you know, some iffy interactions. Novak Djokovic, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Like, don't don't lie about that. This is where we are. The point is, the rule needs to be changed. Put a little towel rack on the side of the court. It's just, it's totally out of hand. Give them an extra two seconds. Nobody wants to handle your bodily fluids. Well, I mean, there's some people on tennis Twitter who would, but y'all are nasty. <laughs> oh my God. Naomi Osaka, a quick word. Today, Naomi finally spoke about what that U.S. Open final was to her in more depth. Mm. She started off by saying, I've got some tea, but I can't spill it. Something to that ex- extent. Yeah. And whether that tea has to do with her true feelings about the matter after she's had some time to process it or interactions with people from various camps or whatever or you know people acting a fool we don't know because we didn't get that tea what we got was a little bit more of an insight into how she really feels about the situation and i think she's experiencing there was a lot of like shock at the start Mm -hmm. and she's going through the stages and she's clearly gotten to the point where it's anger (laughs) and what is disappointment one of them Oh, like the stages of grief? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, so somewhere there. Uh-huh. And, you know, this will always be something that was tarred for her. Tarnished. Yeah. Something that yeah. was... Tar- this will always be something that was tarnished for her. And she said that part of the reason why she was able to do so well in Tokyo, we were here rooting for Naomi. We were so happy that she was able to make it to the final, was hoping that she'd be able to get home, sign all those endorsement deals, mm-hmm. cash those checks, and then go... Oh, and then go hoist that trophy title. She made it to the final, eventually losing. To Karolina Pliskova. Mm-hmm. And she said that part of the reason why she was able to do so well was because she kind of just threw herself into her work, into playing well and then trying to make Singapore, which she has. She has mm. qualified. She's the third person behind Halep and Kerber to qualify for Singapore. So big time big ups to Naomi Osaka. But it seems like she has processed what happened to the point where it doesn't quite sit well with her. Right. As to what that means, what she really thinks about it, she hasn't let us know yet. And who she thinks is responsible for... The point is that, you know, now she's able to look back. It's almost a month later. And there are some negative feelings. Like you said, she was hoping that Tokyo would kind of take her mind off of it. Uh, but when she looks back at her first Grand Slam title, it's not a generally positive memory for her. No. She'll probably win a lot more. And those will be positive memories for her. She said that this week. 
that she doesn't <laughs> see herself as a one-time person right? that she thinks she's going to win more and i like that i want to see that confidence from her there's this great dichotomy within naomi right now where she still has that vulnerability mm-hmm. but then this brashness and cockiness that people want to project onto her but we stereotypically saw we saw that during the U.S. Open when mm-hmm. she says, I really want to play Serena. Mm-hmm. And what did she do? She went out with a game plan and executed it extremely well. I hope that this event that happened totally outside of her control doesn't shift the balance between that vulnerability and that confidence. Right. Because it's, it's at such a perfect equilibrium right now. <laughs> I mean, I want Naomi to be herself. I, you know, I want, I hope that she can protect herself, but I think she should know that she's that bitch. That's the balance. And I hope that by talking about it now and maybe talking about it more publicly or maybe getting it out in the open with a therapist, a good therapist or people close Mm -hmm. around her, that she's able to not have this linger. Because say it happened at the U.S. Open, she was able to that she it was able to take her mind off it by doing all these press events. She okay. went on Ellen, she did all this stuff. Then she goes to Asia, and then she signs all these contracts. She is rich as fuck now, going to be even richer. Hopefully, she got a date with Eric Killmonger. <laughs> she has Michael B. Jordan sending her videos, mm-hmm. taking off his glasses to talk to her through the camera. Creed, right? Creed two. And then she gets back onto the court and she has to grapple with the tennis more intimately again. And then she goes and she makes the final, she deals with that. And now it's kind of like a, a, a fully decompressing kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Like this is now where you have to really fully grapple with it. And I hope that all these experiences have allowed her to maybe get some of that resentment and and rightful anger out of her system to the point where it doesn't linger and i think this is something that we said on the previous episode as well that'd be one of the greatest tragedies if this is something that affects naomi long term Mm. final bit of news we have a couple of pregnancy announcements martina hingis is pregnant she's with child and uh yeah there's that and then today which came as quite a surprise to damn near everybody on tennis twitter elena's elena vesnina is pregnant as well We haven't seen her on the WTA tour since April. And there was this whole big drama when leading into the French Open, her and Makarova split. Mm -hmm. And they were one tournament away from becoming world number one in doubles. I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) What's going on? Why have you split? Is there some like big old drama that we don't know about? And the timing of it doesn't necessarily mean that it had to do with Vizina telling her about the pregnancy. Because that... Oh, you're still holding out hope that there was actual drama? Not holding out hope. <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's possible that there was something else as well. Okay. I don't know. Because they both won Miami uh-huh. together. And then they were supposed to go on to Rome. And then all of a sudden, they have different partners. And they... Vesnina played again mm. without Makarova. So I don't know what that situation is where she tells Makarova, hey, I'm pregnant, but let's just play out, you know, the next couple of tournaments that uh, I have to whatever. Or maybe it's Makarova's like, well... Maybe she's like, well, I need to get used to yeah. playing with a new partner or... We don't know. Hmm. 
but there's a little bit more light shed on that scenario. What I want to know is, what is it about Indian Wells and winning Indian Wells that allows women or propels women into motherhood? <laughs> because Victoria Azarenka won Indian Wells in 2016. Viznina won Indian Wells in 2017. Yes, yeah, so I just who, hope who Na- won Indian Wells in 2018. I just hope Naomi doesn't get too carried away with all her success in 2018. I hope that's not too indelicate, or that maybe Simona Halep from 2015. Like, who's going to complete the trifecta? <laughs> anyway, WTA, get a maternity leave plan in place, please. Let's not have to go through that again. <laughs> On that note, my name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. My name is James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at the Body Serve on Twitter. You can find the podcast also on Instagram, mm-hmm. the Body Serve. Hit us up on iTunes with a review. Those are always delightful. Well, mostly. <laughs> I also want to shout out to a lot of folks who have reached out to us via email. We have seen your emails. We appreciate them. We don't always have the time to respond in a timely manner, but please don't feel like we're ignoring you. And we thank you for those as well. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.